welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a talented trombonist and composer from the greater Kansas City area, Brian Scarborough. Hello, everybody. This is Leander from Improv Exchange, and today we have Brian Scarborough with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, excited to be here and talking music with you today, so thanks for uh, having me on. And thank you for joining us, and could you please introduce yourself to the people? Yeah, my name is Brian Scarborough. I am a trombonist, composer, and educator um, based in Kansas City, and i uh, yeah, I, I was born outside of Chicago in, in a close suburb, and my family moved to Kansas City when I was young. I uh, started playing trombone in fifth grade and went through public school band and jazz band and, and really got the bug in middle school and uh, did my undergraduate studies at University of Kansas with a degree in trombone performance. And I moved back to Chicago, where I uh, did my master's in jazz studies at DePaul University, which I really loved uh, being at DePaul and just in Chicago. And after I graduated um, from DePaul, I moved back to Kansas City in 2015 and have been uh, freelancing and working and leading bands uh, in the area ever since. So, yeah. That's great, man. And I know you just released a new album. Could you please tell the people about that? Yeah, this is my debut album as a band leader featuring my uh, local band here in Kansas City. I'm really lucky to have some great musicians on it with me. Uh, Matt Otto on tenor saxophone, Adam Schlossman on guitar, Jeff Harshbarger on the bass, and Brian Stever on the drums. Um, and we released uh, just a couple weeks ago on August 7th, uh, the album is Sunflower Song, and it came out on Outside In Music's Next Level label. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, we recorded back in January, uh, which at this point seems like another world. Um, but it's, uh, it's nice to have it out there and, and have a, a, you know, finished product out and available for people to listen to. Okay. Well, everyone, I suggest you check out the album. I personally did like it. It had a more... I say a modern approach to the traditional jazz feel that people seem to love. Yeah, I would say I would say that's a that's a pretty good way of putting it. Uh, you know, I definitely like some of the modern aesthetics, um, and some of the you know approach to harmony and melody and even form, um, but definitely kind of you know stemming from that jazz tradition. Um, so I think that's a great way of putting it. So yeah. So how did you get the jazz bug? Cause you just mentioned that you got it from what Chicago or Kansas city. So, yeah, I think some of it was growing up here in Kansas city, obviously it's such a historic, um, you know, jazz city and just being aware of, you know, the wealth of, of jazz talent that, you know, lived here and created here and came out of here. So I think that was part of it just being surrounded by all of that growing up. Uh, and it was always cool too, you know, being in jazz band in, in high school and all right, we're going to play this, you know, this bassy chart and then be like, oh yeah, you know, I could drive 15, 20 minutes up the road 
and be at some of those places where he was making music and collaborating with people. So that was always something I was aware of. But I do have a, a brother that is five years older than I am, uh, who's also a trombone player who now teaches elementary school music in the area. But I grew up, um, you know, five years younger, going to his band concerts, going to his jazz concerts. And again, just kind of being surrounded by that. And that's how we would spend our evenings. We'd go to a jazz concert or go to a band concert of Brett's. Um, I think it just kind of, you know, cemented it in my brain as something I really enjoyed doing. I always liked those experiences. And then, you know, that combined with the scene here and then just having access to great, um, not only the historic side of the Kansas City jazz scene, but there's a lot of great players living here now. Um, so being able to work with them at camps and go and see their gigs and then just having some really great teachers, um, you know, just kind of continued to, to feed me inspiration, you know, through that middle school and high school time period. Mm-hmm. Understood. At least when you bring up the historic part, that is something I have yet to do. I have yet to go to the jazz museum over there. Sure. Uh, and I, it's something I got to check out. But so go into the because you mentioned something earlier about the Kansas Nebraska Act, right? Yes, yeah. What so the, the Kansas yeah. Nebraska Act, um, a buddy of mine who I was doing, he was doing a master's, um, or maybe it was a doctor, I don't know, some graduate degree at the University of Kansas. Um, David Von Campen uh, was somebody I got to know through school. And so I played on his recitals and we played his compositions and arrangements and big band and things. Um, and so he has Nebraska roots. Um, and then there's a lot, it's just kind of this, this mess of people that, you know, crossed paths in varying stages. So people from Nebraska that came to Kansas to study, or when I was living in Chicago, um, I was living with another musician from Nebraska, but we both knew David Von Campen and had worked with him at different <laughs> at different universities. Um, and so there was a time, oh, three or four years ago at this point, I was on Facebook and, and David posted something about, you know, a memory from his, or a video from his um, graduate jazz recital that I got to play on. And I just posted like... <laughs> you know, the first comment was like, this was super fun. When are we doing a record? And uh, he kind of thought about it and actually went ahead and put together a recording project. Um, So we featured some of those musicians, again, that we had crossed paths at varying stages, people um, from Kansas City and Lawrence um, and then Lincoln and Omaha. And we got together and um, recorded seven or eight of David's compositions and arrangements. And um, I think it was a really fun recording to be a part of uh it was a great band and i I really like the way that he writes and uh just it was a really good energy and vibe that that weekend we went up and did a live show and then we recorded the next day and yeah that's the kansas nebraska act so there's some murmurs and talk of maybe doing something similar um you know if we are ever allowed to do so when we can emerge from our our houses but hopefully um, it's definitely a cool thing (laughs) So would you do a Chicago, Kansas City act since you are one of the few people I personally know that is a native to both the scenes there? Yeah, I think I would personally love to do something like that and have have thought about and brainstormed some different kinds of projects um, that would do something like that, bringing together some of the people I work with here 
um, with some of the people that I was fortunate to study with and work with up there. Um, so yeah, that that's something that gets thrown around. Um, and then my old roommate in Chicago, like I said, he was from Nebraska. He's a tenor saxophone player. We've talked about maybe, you know, pulling together to, to do a record with some of the, you know, the old rhythm section players we used to get to play with uh, in Chicago. So I think, you know, the, the impression that that time in Chicago, you know, left on me is it, it's always going to be there uh, in an appreciation for the scene and the players. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's something that crosses my mind regularly and, and is something that I would love to do for sure. Okay. So what's the differences between the Chicago and the Kansas City scene? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that the first big difference is the size of the cities and the size of the scene. Um, you know, Chicago is a great city and it's it, one of the, the the things that I thought about when I lived there was it had a lot of the, you know, big city sort of amenities and just kind of it could afford you some of the opportunities of a New York or an L.A. or um, but it was still relatively Midwestern and welcoming and um it's still just not super, super massive, even though it is a big city. Uh, comparatively speaking, Kansas City is much smaller um, as a city itself. So, and I think that's reflective of the scenes too. You know, the scene in Chicago is very, very big with a ton of really, really uh, wonderful players. Um, the scene here is smaller, but I would say, you know, the, the, the best of the best here could be among the best of the best anywhere. Um, so, it's just, you know, it's different. We've got veteran musicians, just like, you know, um, I got to spend a little bit of time with some of those types of players in Chicago as well. People that played with like Frank Sinatra. Um, there are some people that were on, you know, the road with some, some varying, um, you know, artists and things here as well. So um, there's a lot of similarities, but yeah, I think the size is, you know, the one big difference. Um, but I do, and I do think there's a, you know, swing is very big in Chicago still, you know, even like with a modern aesthetic, the swing is very real and very, very hard. And it, it, I think that there's a similarity here in Kansas city as well, that that's kind of always present, always there. Um, even in, you know, you know more modern kinds of, uh, you know, settings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's all you were going to continue on that. My mistake. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. So, what is something that you have experienced going back to Kansas City from Chicago now that you're not a student anymore? Yeah, I think, you know, just in general, that's one of the reasons I moved back um, was I didn't want to have to take a side gig and kind of get pulled away from music. I really wanted to do that nonstop, 24-7. And I felt that I could do that coming back to Kansas City and kind of picking up where I left off a little bit and was really fortunate, you know, when I came back to, I moved back in July and in August, I started doing a a month long production of West Side Story. So it was nice to be able to kind of slot into the scene and and start doing some work, whether that was musical theater, which I still do a fair bit of, or band leading or big bands or wedding kinds of work. Um, So but I think, you know, that's the natural next step. You know, once you finish school, it's all about now this is my job. This is my full time. Um, and that's something that I've really enjoyed the variety uh, that I've been able to do, like the kinds of work that I've been able to do here in Kansas City. And um, 
it's just been nice to be able to, you know, maintain that focus on music as the goal and not get pulled in other directions. No, that's something that I'm proud you did because one thing that I do see is I see people who I believe aren't ready come to the New York scene and try mm-hmm. to compete for those same limited amount of spots. And that's one reason why they get burnt out or they don't last. Sure. Like if you went back home and developed more, but like I said, to each their own. I also don't know their financial situation, but right. that is something that I would suggest to a person that was coming out if they are able to. You want to be playing as much as possible. In New York, especially, actually, especially now, when if things were to open tomorrow, I don't think a lot of these clubs will be jamming right away. There's going to be even less opportunity for gigs and performances. Right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of my, one of my thoughts that I think about with, with regards to, cause I like to create some educational resources and do some different kinds of things. And it's just like music feeds music. So by getting to do music all day or going and doing music work at night or whatever, Sometimes it's like warming up for a gig that I get an idea for a educational handout or something. Cause it's just like, that's what I'm thinking about. Or, Oh, let me think about this concept, maybe very specific to trombone warmups or something. But you know, when I'm warming up for a gig, some of that stuff just comes very organically because you're living in that world. So not only, you know, has coming back here been an opportunity to kind of grow and kind of plant that seed of, you know, just, and, and, and grow as a, as a musician and band leader and all of that. But um, just being able to do music all the time has been really inspiring and, and helped me create some additional things that I don't know if I would have had time or the inspiration to do otherwise. So how do you students see the music world? I think, you know, with my students, I teach um, private lessons to anywhere from uh, elementary to high school students. And I also teach adjunct at a community college here in the area. And with my community college students, I just try to be very honest about, you know, how the world works. And if they have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, but, you know, it's... Like, do they think that think, they're going to go from the community college to the big, to the, like Broadway? Right. I think, I think it, it's, it's all about, you know, even though that I've only been back in Kansas city for five years, I was also doing musical theater work and jazz work when starting in high school through undergrad. So there was like six years there too. You know, it's really a long time before you start to get some of the calls that maybe you really, really want to be getting. Um, so I think it's, you know, teaching and, and preaching that, you know, hard work, but, patience and you know and trying to be ready for when those opportunities come uh, because it might it might take well it, it will take longer than you want it to <laughs> but um, I think that's just a big part is trying to inspire and and also you know I know I've got students that don't want to be performers for a living and that's great you know they, some of them want to be educators some of them want to keep music as a hobby um, and so I think some of it too is about teaching that you know improvement on an instrument or really probably in anything is a lifelong pursuit. And so it's, it's about teaching like kind of how that trajectory looks, you know, improvement, maybe plateau, maybe get a little worse, but then you get a little better. And so it's kind of teaching that model and, and training people to prepare um, 
to do that themselves and also just appreciate music in, in general. I think those are, those are big roles and sometimes things we maybe overlook in the education system is, you know, there's so much push for creating great players, which is great, and educators, which is great. But one of the roles of the teacher, I think, whether it's a professional player teaching, you know, private lessons or, or teaching like a band or uh, elementary music class, is really just trying to cultivate that interest in uh, musical performance, especially live performance. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot of great organizations um, that offer opportunities. Like in Kansas City, there's a, a chance for you to take like elementary classes to go see like a curated um, performance by the Kansas City Symphony and go for like a, you know, 11 a.m. performance by the symphony. Um, so I think a big part is just trying to create and encourage, you know, and inspire people to want to go and continue to see live music so that, you know, uh, live music continues to thrive as we get into this world, you know, that continues to move forward uh, with more streaming and more, you know, immediate. Well, streaming and YouTube and all that stuff is something yeah. that I fear is going to kill live music. But since you probably brought that part up, yeah. how has Corona been affecting you in the live music part? Yeah, it's definitely been a, you know, a long time. I, when, when all of this, like the shutdowns and things started to go into place, it was mid-March and I was getting ready to open a month long uh, run of a musical of Carousel. Carousel, yes. And um, that ended up obviously getting canceled. But then it was, you know, after that it was, Easter gigs, it was jazz small group gigs, it was big band gigs, it was summer jazz camps, it was, you know, now it's to the point where it's been like three different productions, three addition, additional productions, like musical theater shows that have been canceled. And also, you know, like you were saying, right now there's not, the venues really aren't open, but, and it, so nobody's adding concerts right now. So everything disappeared from the calendar and then nothing has really been added. So that's taken its toll. You know, I think as, as performers, you know, we love to perform, we love to play. And that's become even more apparent through this whole process is how much I really love to do all that stuff. It might be difficult sometimes, you know, when you've taught all day or done other work or whatever, um, you know, to get, get everything going and organized for a gig, but the, the energy and like just the way that that feeds you um, has been something that I've really noticed and missed. Um, I have had the opportunity to do a couple musical things, um, did a little bit of horn tracking in um, June, and actually my my um, my jazz quintet, mm-hmm. the uh, the band from the record, we did have a bass sub, but um, we did a live recording at a, a different local community college with their like audio and video department recently. So everybody was distanced on the stage, um, but we got together and played some of the music from the record, um, and they're airing that footage throughout um, the fall. And that was the first gig that I got to play with other musicians, like a full band, um, since March. And it was fantastic. It was so enjoyable. um, And it was nice to know that I hadn't forgotten how, (laughs) but also just... um, that the band was still really uh, like 
the communication level was very high and energy was high. And um, so that was great. You know, that was two weeks ago at this point. That footage will become available and start to air for my performance on Tuesday, October 6th. Um, and I'll have a link to that on my website. But and then, and then once it airs, too, like it'll become available and then it'll be available 24-7 through the end of the year. So it's not like if you That's good. Uh, That's couldn't good. catch it at that specific time it officially airs, it will still be available if people want to see it. But that was both, you know, the best day I've had for a long time. And also, like, you know, you get home from that and it's like, man, it's forever until we're going to do that again. Yeah, so, that's another issue altogether. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just kind of a tough a tough thing to, to come to terms with was yeah. that high followed by that just realization of, you know, it's going to be another... I don't know how, how long until I'm with that band again and then able to, you know, workshop the new tunes I've been writing through this coronavirus, like shut down. That's what you should do. Just stack them up, man. Keep them safe piled just in case. So, yeah, so. that's, I've been doing a fair amount of writing, um, which it's been nice to have time to do. I'm trying to make the most of the time that I do have. Like it's definitely a bummer to not be playing, but. Dude, during this lockdown, I think I wrote 35 new songs. So I feel you on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like for me, I'm kind of in that, I just released my debut album and kind of thinking about what other things I can do. And before all this was looking into, you know, sorts of like arts retreats and those kinds of things, artist residencies. And those give you time. They, you know, sometimes there's some financial, you know, thing that accompanies it. But the big thing is they give you the opportunity to dig into what you want to dig into. So I'm trying to take that approach now at home, and be as productive as I can with composition, with educational resources, with practice. So just trying to stay busy. Understood. So where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, you know, I know there's, there's a, in, within the global jazz genre, you know, there's so many subgenres. And there's some really progressive kinds of groups doing some very, um, in, doing some electronic kinds of things, which is very cool. There's some cross collaborations that are very cool. And then you've got some other groups that are maybe a little bit more traditional, but still putting out really great recordings and things. So I think there's going to be a lot of great players. And I think there's going to be a lot of great music that's going to, again, continue to fall in all these different subgenres. Um, and some of them are, you know, I know. Um, maybe, again, pulling in some more of those electronic kinds of uh, components or lo-fi, I know, is a thing that's kind of, you know, I've heard that that's maybe something that some jazz people are experimenting with. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of different um, roads to great recordings, but, uh, you know, like always, too, there's going to be a lot of great recordings, so... You know, when there's a lot of recorded work, it's hard to get through all of it and figure out what sorts of things you want to listen to. Um, so that could, you know, present some difficulty for, for listeners as well, just trying to kind of comb through all the recordings and find what they like. But you still think there'll be a jazz scene at least, right? Yeah, I definitely think there'll be a jazz scene. I think it'll be really strong. Um, you know, I'm I'm not that old, you know, I'm 29, but I... Um, I'm to the point where I'm starting to hire some younger players for gigs once in a while. And I continue to be, you know, really impressed by that next gener generation of 
you know, students and students of jazz and students of music. Um, I do feel that, you know, the education level has gone up um, and the expectations have gotten higher in, you know, different schools and things. And it's just continued to um, present challenges to students, but continually they rise to meet those those standards. So, um you know, I think there will definitely be a jazz scene, and, and I definitely plan to be a part of it still, um, hopefully making records and um, working with my peers and maybe doing some collaborations with people, whether that's, you know, fellow musicians or um, animators or, you know, any anything, just to kind of continue to try to reach new audiences and bring this really great art form that I'm super passionate about to a bigger audience. Okay. Well, Brian, before you go... We always like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists that come before us. Okay. I'm yeah. going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Okay. Okay. All right. So on trumpet, Clifford Brown or Chef Baker? Clifford Brown. Okay. You going to yeah, tell us why? Yeah, go ahead. Again, you know, those records. Um, you know, the famous Cherokee record and is it study in Brown and more study in Brown. I think those are the, the records, you know, they are, they're just, they're timeless. You go back and you listen and think, man, and he was how young when this was coming out. And then now, you know, there's those, those like practice tapes that have come out with him, you know, practicing super slow and kind of giving you a little insight into what he was working on. Um, you know, super tragic and, but to think about like where where he was at even that point in his career, and then also think about maybe the music that didn't get a chance to be made because of you know life being cut short. So okay, that's fair. So on saxophone, John Coltrane or Charlie Parker? Yeah, I think you know this is a this is a tough one, um, but you know especially being a you know Kansas City native charlie parker would probably be my pick um again just you know it's charlie parker is ever present here in kansas city and i know it's you know coming coming up you know relatively soon on 100 years later but i think it's gonna you know that is gonna be in this town forever that kind of the legacy that he left um and so yeah charlie parker fair 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 on base Stanley Clark or Charles Mingus? Mm. That's interesting. Uh, oh, that's that's uh, that one's actually a little bit challenging. I'm gonna say Stanley Clark um, because he's on some great recordings uh, with some with some trombone players. You know, I think there's a few JJ recordings that he's on that I really love. Um, so, but but yeah, that's a that's a difficult one. Okay. So on keys, I'm going to give you Bill Evans or Count Basin. Bill Evans or who was the other one? Sorry. Count Basin. Mm, this is another tough one. You know, there's so many... I'm going to say Bill Evans. Um, you know, there's so many great recordings and um, one that I, 
a track that I always come back to is, you know, the, his band playing uh, You Must Believe in Spring that I that I find particularly moving. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's so many great recordings with that trio. And, yeah, Bill Evans. Okay. On drums, Max Roach or Buddy Rich? Hmm. Max Roach. Yeah. I think, again, we were just talking about those Clifford Brown recordings, but, you know, that the energy that he could bring in that small group setting was really, was really amazing. So, Max Roach. And on trombone, I'm going to ask you two different ones, but we'll say Glenn Miller or Al Gray. I mean, yeah, my pick would be Al Gray. Uh, Obviously, it's, two different, you know, radically different approaches, both to the instrument and kind of improvisationally and, you know, but Al Gray, yeah, the, the plunger stuff, just really, really amazing. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Al Gray. Steve Davis or Troy Trombone Shorty? Ah, okay. This is another good one. Um, again, two totally different kind of ways of utilizing and, and playing the instrument both of which are, you know, magnificent. But for me, it's Steve Davis. I think he is one of my uh, favorite, you know, trombone players in general. He would be very high on that list um, because of the, you know, his style, his the pacing of his solos. Um, I've done a lot of Steve, da- Steve Davis uh, transcriptions, and each time they're really enjoyable. But then, yeah, getting to look at them and see kind of how well they're structured and, and how well they're performed, and it's just really amazing. So, yeah, Steve Davis. Okay. Steve D. <laughs> Correct. So, Brian, can you tell people how to reach you, your social media and everything? Yeah, sure. My website is brianscarboroughmusic.com, and um, I do have an email newsletter if people are so interested. It goes out once a month, not too many times, but just kind of highlights what's going on. And um, also on Facebook and Instagram, Brian Scarborough Music. Okay. Well, Brian, once again, thank you for coming out and listening. I mean, not listening, joining us on the show, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for having me. This was fun. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to emerging from my, my apartment and hopefully getting be able to come back to New York sometime and maybe we can connect. So. Likewise, man. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thank you. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>